Hey friends, this is Keenan, the Creative Arts Minister at the Christian Church of Carl Junction. And I just want to say thank you for joining us for this podcast. The Christian Church of Carl Junction exists to glorify God by being disciples who make more disciples. We do that by coming to God, thriving in family, and going on mission for His kingdom. We hope that this podcast helps you take next steps in following Jesus with everything that you have. Now, here's today's podcast episode. Good morning. Good morning and welcome again to the Christian Church of Carl Junction. I'm so glad that you're with us here in the room. You're with us online right here. I'm so glad you've come today to hear from the Word of God. This is the uh, seventh week now in our series called Disciple. We're taking a journey through the Gospel of Mark, just listening for how we can be better learners better followers of who Jesus made us to be so we can be like Jesus in our life. It's been a great series. I've enjoyed preaching it. I've enjoyed uh, just studying and learning along the way also as well. Uh, Two weeks ago, our children's minister, Rebecca Robertson, joined me up on the stage here just to share the message and and, um, uh, had a great time preaching and studying along with her. Today, our student minister, Eric Wasson, is going to join me, uh, has joined me. You're already here, and you're going to be a part of the message as well today. And here in a few weeks, you'll hear from uh, other staff members along with me, interns, people throughout the summertime. It's just a different way of preaching. We're enjoying this conversation that we get to have. And Eric, how long now have you been on staff as our student minister? I've been on staff for about eight months because I started in August of last year. That's right. You started, and I tell you all the time, you started in the world's worst time to start a job as a student minister at church. <laughs> you started when we weren't having student ministry because of the <laughs> pandemic and all the things and trying to figure out how to rebuild things coming out of a, a, just a new season in things. And you're doing a fantastic job. My son, my oldest is 16, he's a junior in high school, and he loves coming to student ministry events. And so if you have students, uh, children or grandchildren, make sure and bring them, send them to gather with other students right here. And right now you are gearing up for camp, right? Yeah. Uh, that starts in July. Yeah, it starts in July. And we have a, a junior high week, high school week at Maranatha Bible Camp. Fantastic place to go. So make sure and register your kids and grandkids as well for that. Um, Eric, before you were on staff here, you were a part of the church for a while. How long have you been a part of us here? Um, I started attending Carl Junction in the spring of 2017. Yeah. So I've been you, around for a while at this point. You came to us all the way from California. You made the trek because you just wanted <laughs> to be here, right? Oh, that's definitely uh, it. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> Eric came to go to Ozark Christian College. We love the college. We partner with it all the time. And um, many of our staff, actually all of our staff, have been through Ozark at, at some level. And it's a fantastic college. You came to go to school and then ended up here because of a friend, I believe. And uh, you yeah. just, in my mind, you've just kind of always been here now. You first were attending and just kind of hanging out with us, and then you were interning for us, and now you're on staff and doing great things with our students. And, um, I, I love being on staff and partnering. You're a great addition to who we are. We're going to, this morning, Eric's going to help me walk through Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. If you want to go ahead and turn there, Mark 10, verse 17. A little context, just so we know where we're at in the scripture. In Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10, Jesus is on this final move toward Jerusalem. In fact, Mark 11 is going to begin with a section titled The Triumphal Entry. It's when Jesus goes into Jerusalem for the final time, for the final week of life before he went to the cross, was buried in the tomb, and then resurrected again. And Mark 8, 9, and 10, he's teaching his disciples, his learners. He's teaching them all about 
the kingdom of God and how the kingdom is not uh, one that rules with power and strength and mighty swords and battles, but it's one that leads through serving and through loving. The disciples still, they think they're going to Jerusalem to overthrow the Roman Empire, but that's not what Jesus is all about. And he's reminding them over and over and over again. And in Mark chapter 10, we're going to see him talk to a man. The rich young ruler is what is probably titled in your scripture. He's going to talk to a man about how we come to the kingdom of God, how it's a kingdom of humility, not of pride. It's going to be a fantastic time in the Word today. I'm excited about it. Eric, before we jump in, why don't you just pray and ask God to speak. I have a scripture today. All right. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for today. And Lord, I pray that as we go through the scripture today that we learn um, from the rich young ruler and what it looks like to follow God and um, how uh, his, about what the interaction between him and Jesus can speak into our lives and how we can follow the example that has been set by scripture. Just pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Why don't you go ahead and kick us off. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So before we get any farther, we got to pause right here. We're going to pause a lot through the scripture today. We got to pause and we got to know who we're talking about. Who is this character we meet that is talking to Jesus right here? This guy that pulls up. See, Mark refers to him as a man. Uh, maybe a different translation that you might have says a certain man. So why do we call him the rich young ruler? We see this event, this guy is mentioned in the gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three gospels mention this guy right here. And Matthew calls him a young man. Luke calls him a ruler. And all three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all say rich. So we call him the rich young ruler because we put it all together and we get this full picture of who this guy is. He's a rich young ruler. This guy has accumulated, amassed success and possessions and things beyond his years. He has put together a resume that lifts him above the crowd and people look up to him. He has authority and power over people. And he has all these possessions, all this wealth and the culture who have been greatly, greatly respected because clearly God has been blessing him with all these things along the way. And another interesting thing to note about what takes place in that section of the passage is the fact that he ran to Jesus, which is actually really uncommon within Jewish culture for men to be running at all, unless it was something that was actually really important that was going on, or they had something important to ask, which is what we see here, because he's already accomplished a lot in life, and now he's moving on to the next part of life, and that's why he's running to Jesus to ask the question of, what can I do to have eternal life? Yeah, because he's, he's already got everything he can get yep. on his own. And now he's looking for the one thing he can't gain on his own. So he runs to Jesus. Here at the church, we like to say three words. They are come, thrive, and go. We want people to come to Jesus, thrive in family, and go on mission. And as this guy here comes to Jesus, he comes running with enthusiasm and energy and expectation that Jesus is going to give him something, say something to him that's going to change his life. And I wonder, as I think about myself and I think about you, I wonder when we come to Jesus... How often do we come to Jesus, either in a time of corporate worship here, or you come to turn the live stream on at home, or or you come to a time of private Bible reading or in prayer? I wonder how often do we come to Jesus, not running, but trudging instead? We come in. Maybe you can't wait a day. You come trudging in. 
it's Sunday, the alarm went off way too early, and it's time to go to church. And so here I am, because I, I don't want to miss a time. I, don't, I want my attendance to be noted by people. So I come trudging in. I read the Bible because, well, I guess I'm supposed to, so I, I trudge to it. I want to encourage you that just like this man right here, you've accumulated a lot. You've been blessed incredibly. Simply by the nation you were born in, you've accumulated, amassed a lot. But there's one thing you can never gain for yourself, and it comes from God only. So when we come to Jesus, we come running, expectant, excited. On Sunday mornings, I wake up early in the morning. I get here way before the first service, and I am excited for the morning. I'm expectant that God is going to show up, and he's going to speak, and it's going to be amazing. That's how I encourage and challenge you to come to Jesus also. The man asks a question when he gets there. He comes running up to Jesus, and he falls to his knees. So as powerful as he is, as rich as he is, as successful as he is, he still knows the power of kneeling before somebody greater. He falls to his knees before Jesus. Good teacher. Almost a picture out of breath. Good teacher. He comes up. What do I must I do to get eternal life? He sees a question that's been asked by every person who's ever lived in any time, anywhere in the world. I, I could paraphrase it. The, the man is really saying, Jesus, how can I be saved? How do I get saved? Uh, another way we could phrase it, if we're reading with the lines and kind of paraphrasing, Jesus, how can I be good enough? Everybody asks this question. At some point, at some time, we all ask this. How can I be good enough? The Jews at the time, they were asking this question all the time. They were asking it every day. When, God, are you going to send your Messiah to overthrow the Roman Empire and to save us from everything that we're going through? When, God, are you going to do this? When are we going to be good enough to not be under their thumb anymore? We have people all over the world that believe all kinds of things. And since we're in here and this is a safe place right now, I'll tell you, I believe they are false religions and false hopes and false gods. But, but we have people that, that, that ascribe to the Buddhist faith that just how can I be saved? How can I achieve a, a state of nirvana, of inner peace so I can be saved? Or the Hindus, how can I achieve unity with Brahma and avoid this reincarnation cycle so I can stop this endless perpetuated thing in my life? We have people all the time, how can I please the, the God I follow, the, the person so that I can be good enough? Now, as a follower of Jesus, we ask the question, Jesus, how can I be saved? How do I get eternal life? How can I really be good enough? People that are claiming to be atheists and agnostics and they don't believe in God, they don't believe in anything, they ask it too. How can I be good enough? What do I have to earn to be good enough? How much do I have to put in my bank account so I can be safe in my next season of life? Well, they ask the same questions. We ask them as in our roles, our daily roles too. If you have kids, if you have kids, have you ever said, uh, am I a good enough parent? Or am I a good enough worker? Employ, am I good enough to get that promotion, that raise, that position, that thing? Am I good enough in my interview to get that job? Am I good enough? 
Am I a good enough boss? Am I a good enough neighbor? Am I a good enough spouse? We ask it all the time. How can I be saved? How can I be good enough? This guy comes to Jesus and asks this question, and it's one we can relate to because we've asked it over and over. And Jesus is going to help this man break through so he can answer the question. He can know that he's saved, and he can know that he's good enough. He can know it because it's what God does for us. So when he comes to the man, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How does Jesus respond to him? He responds with, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone, which is a very typical Jesus answer of responding to a question with a question. He did it all the time to the disciples. He did it to the Pharisees. He did it to guys who came up and asked him questions. He responded with questions to questions all the time. Yeah, which can be infuriating, can't it? Let's be honest, whether it's somebody you're talking to, a neighbor, a friend, a family member, or Jesus, just give me a straight answer, okay? It can be infuriating, but Jesus does it all the time. It's how he leads, by asking questions so you think and you get to where you need to be, right? But Jesus isn't going to leave it only to question. He's going to instruct the man, too. He's going to go ahead and speak to the man. What's he say to him? He says, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Yeah, he he goes and delivers to him these six commands, which happen to come straight from the Ten Commandments that God delivered to Moses back in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 10. He delivered these Ten Commandments. But it's interesting that Jesus only says six of them here. He leaves four of them out. In fact, he skips over the first four. You know, the first four of the commands, the the first one, you shall have no other gods besides me. The second, you shall not make an idol for yourself. The third, do not misuse the name of God. The fourth, honor and remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy, a day apart from the pace of your life that you can devote to me, he says. And Jesus skips over these first four and goes straight to the end of them. Don't murder people. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't cheat. Don't commit adultery. He goes straight to that last six. Right to those. I think about when Jesus in Matthew 22, he was asked by a teacher of the law, what's the greatest command? They were trying to trick him. They thought they could trap him with this question. But Jesus isn't going to get trapped. He he says, "Well, well, here's the first one. I'll answer it. The first command is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. It's the first four of the Ten Commandments. You love God with everything. And you honor him with everything. And you follow him with everything. And the second command is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's the last six. Love the neighbor as yourself. Everything in the last six is horizontally based. The first four are vertical to God and the last six are horizontal. Love people. And truthfully, I think that Jesus looks at this man and he sees his heart. Remember in 1 Samuel 16 when God speaks to the prophet who's anointing David, the second king of Israel. He says, I don't look at people the way that other people do. I don't see just the outside facade. I look at the inner heart of the man. I look at the inner heart of the person. Jesus looks at him. And he sees what the man struggles with the most. See, I I believe... Ironically enough, it's easier to say I love God than I love people. So I can say I love God any day of the week, 
anytime you speak to me. I love God. Of course I love God. I go to church, right? I know the songs. I pray the prayers. I give an offering even sometimes. I love God. Obviously I love God. I listen to him. I read the Bible. I even memorized a verse when I was six years old. I love God. But you don't know what God's saying to me. You don't know what God's convicted me of that I'm ignoring. You don't know what I'm trying to avoid with God. But I can tell you I love God. But if I say I love people, that's hard. See, people have a hard time loving other people. So Jesus goes right to it with this guy in these six commands. People have a hard time loving other people. Why is it that we have a hard time loving other people? It's incredibly hard to love people because it requires, one, giving up time that you would maybe want to be spending doing something else. It also requires you to be vulnerable with the other person, to take times to feel their emotions with them and to um, share whatever it is maybe going on in their life. It also requires sometimes engaging with people, which can be hard because you don't always want to do that. Sometimes interacting with someone is the last thing that you want to do in your day, and that's a hard thing to do sometimes. Yeah, it's so much easier to say, I love God, and I just love God in you know, my private time, right? Because you don't see my private time, and you, I can convince you it's anything. But if I say I love you, that means I have to give up what I want to do, get on my hands and knees and help you. That's hard. That's a hard thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Very hard. And Jesus looks at this man, he sees right through the facade the man has built, and What's he, what's he say to him? He says, teacher, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Yeah, the guy gets excited. I read between the lines, I read the emotion into it, and I think this guy who's successful, he's proud, he thinks he's got everything figured out in life, he goes to Jesus, he falls on his knees, he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the, Jesus says back, you, well, follow the commands, you know them, the last six, love people, you know them, and the guy gets up. Because he's a religious guy. He goes to the temple. He offers worship, sacrifices. He's memorized the scripture. He's grown up in this since he's a boy. He stands up. And I think he puffs his chest up, puts his shoulders back, lifts his head, looks around the crowd and says, yeah, did you hear that? I got it. Look at me. I'm good at business. I'm good at relationships. I'm good at financial management. And I'm good at this whole, like, religious thing. Did you hear that? The teacher said, follow the commands. I already did all that. I got it. But see, the man, the man is though he's living behind a facade of religiosity. He's living behind a facade of faking religious things to seem good enough and righteous enough on his own. We all do this exact same thing. You're as guilty as I am, as Eric is. We all live behind facades to make ourselves feel better, seem better, so we can imagine and convince others, well, clearly I'm right with God. I've created a facade. Right? How do we do that? I mean... We do it all the times in many different ways. Like I have created many facades over time. One of them that I did was during junior high and high school. So if you were to put me on any kind of, you know, personality test, I am a feeler. I feel all the emotions despite what some people think sometimes. And because of that, I was harassed a lot through school. Heaven forbid if tears came out, it just gave him more ammunition to harass me and make fun of me more. And so I learned how to put on a facade of, no, I'm fine. I don't care what you said. But really, I would be hurting and on the inside because of things they said or did. 
but it was a facade I had of pretending to be okay. Yeah, how often do you meet somebody, somebody you know well? Maybe it even happened this morning. Maybe you walked to this building this morning, and, and or, or you uh, you talked to them on the phone this morning, and and you say, "How are you doing? How are you?" And they say, "I'm good." And you look, and you're like, "I know you." That is a fake smile. But because we don't want to push too hard, overstep a boundary, offend somebody, we say. Okay, and we go our separate ways, and you think in your head, they're not right. They're not good. But we've created a facade to seem okay. We do it in all kinds of things. My wife and I, when we were first married, we got married in 2002 over in Joplin, Missouri, just the neighboring town here. We got married, and, and we were I was serving on staff at a church at the time. I was a student minister actually doing what you do here. I was a student minister at a church, and, and things are going great, and we got married, and we realized that when we were dating, we had all the money we wanted. We were living separate lives and things were different. And then we got married and we bought a house and we had no money. Anybody's newly married, you know this, how this works. We had zero dollars and a lot of wants and a lot of dreams and a lot of bills and a little more debt than we should have had. And we were in a tight spot. I wasn't making a lot as a pastor in a church, and we were in a tight spot. My wife was a, a student at Ozark Christian College, and we were in tight spots. And so then we go to church, and the church there says, well, it's time for offering. Now that church, just like this church here, that church didn't chase money. We don't chase money, but we give toward the mission of the kingdom of God because there's a biblical principle in surrendering our finances and giving up of things so that the kingdom can flourish around us and we can be a part of that. So it came time for giving an offering at that church. And I looked at my wife and she looked at me. I was like, uh, we didn't think about that when we made a budget. And she says, do we really make a budget though? And I... And I said, well, that sounds better. It's a facade. But we had no money to give. And it was offering time. And we were like, what are we going to do? I don't know. So we went and we did the only thing we think of. We Googled it. And you know, if you Google something long enough, you can find somebody that says what you want them to say on the internet somewhere. And we chose that answer. And so we found somewhere on Google that it said, you don't have to give You don't have to give your money to church. You don't have to. When Jesus said to give an offering, when the Apostle Paul said to give an offering, they they weren't really talking about money. You can give anything you want to. And so we latched on and we were like, okay, we're going to tithe our time. I got more time than I got money at that point in my life. We're going to tithe our time. And so we started tithing our time. Now, in hindsight, granted, to be really brutally honest with myself in front of you, I was getting paid to be at the church, so I wasn't really tithing anything. But we were tithing our time for a couple of years. And then we moved to northeast Indiana to our second ministry. I was a student minister there also, and I got there, and, and when I got hired into the church, they made it clear that the church expects their staff to lead the way in generosity and giving. In fact, it's one of our values here. We lead the way in generosity. But they expected it, and I, I was like, okay. So they know how much they're paying me, right? So I'm stuck in a little bit of a tight spot. I'm like, I want to make sure that if they ever check, they know I'm doing good enough because i got to maintain the facade. 
And so we tithed to the penny 10% of what I made at the church. And my wife had a job on the, on the side somewhere else, but they didn't know how much she made, so we continued to tithe her time. And we kind of went on for a while, and it wasn't for another year or so before God really convicted us and showed us the joy of giving. Of how when we surrender our finances, even just that little bit that we have, we surrender it, God frees us up. He frees us up to really follow him and to break through that facade. And it wasn't until God broke through the facade that I had so carefully cultivated in front of my wife, my friends, my family, and my church, that facade I had so carefully built. When God busted through that, it began to open up all kinds of avenues for me to live in the joy of the Lord. The next sentence says, back in the text, that when Jesus looked at him and saw the facade, he broke through it. It says Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Now I might expect, if I have this kind of world view of Jesus, this worldly view, I I might expect them to say Jesus looked at him and condemned him. Or Jesus looked at him and judged him. But that's not it. It says Jesus looked at him and loved him. In fact, he loved him enough to say the hard things that come next, to force the man, to give the man a choice, a hard choice, albeit, but a choice to make so he could choose what he was going to do. Jesus broke through the facade that the man is so carefully cultivated and said, okay, here is your choice. And the man got to make the choice. What did Jesus say to the man? He said, one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Yeah, he breaks right through it. He looks at the man. He says, okay, I I know you go to the temple. I know you offer the sacrifices. I know you do the worship thing. I know that you know the prayers, and I know you know the scriptures. I know all that. But Jesus looks at the man. He says, but I also know you've held on to all these resources, and you've held on to all this this, uh, acclaim and fame and you've kept it for yourself so he pokes through the facade and he says if you want to follow me you've got to let go of the facade you got to surrender it we all have these things to break through we all have them they're all different things for all of us for you maybe yours is entertainment now i love i love being entertained as much as any of y'all do at our house, we have Netflix and Hulu and Disney Plus, just like y'all do. We, we love to be entertained. But sometimes we can hide behind this thing of, I gotta, I gotta make sure I'm entertained or I'm having fun or we can hide behind these things and we can hoard some things because we love it too much and we don't let God have it because I don't want to let go of it like this. I'm on Facebook. I'm in these little Facebook groups. Maybe you're in some Facebook groups too. I'm in more than I should be. I'm in one fascinating deep Facebook group. It's titled Jeeps for Jesus. It's it's the deep things in life that we think about in there. Jeeps for Jesus. And in there, one of the guys in there, he posted this past week. It just got me to thinking a little bit. He said, I want to, I want to share a conversation with you that I had with somebody. And I want to know, was I too harsh or too bold with this? And he said, I was talking to a guy. I was at a campsite talking to a guy. And the guy said, how can you be a follower of that, that God? I mean, doesn't God fail us? He said, God, doesn't he, I mean, how can you say you love God? If God really loved us, how does he let people all around the world starve to death every single day? Why wouldn't God give us more food if he wants us to love us? And and why would he not take care of us even better? And he said, I looked at him and I said, do you really think God's the problem? 
Do you really think God's the problem? Let me share this with you. Around the world, around the world, every second of every day, around the world, every second of every day, $3,000 is spent on pornography. I did a little bit of math. That's roughly $2 billion a week. He went on. He said, every year in America alone, every year in America alone, $50 billion gets spent on cosmetics. You think God's the problem? God has given us everything that we need. The problem is we've entertained ourselves and built facades instead. Now, is it a sin to buy makeup? I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that. I would say it's ascended by pornography no matter what. But the, the point is, we take all the resources God has given us and we pour them into things that entertain us that are good or bad, holy or evil. And we pour them into building facades to cover ourselves up instead of releasing them and surrendering them to the kingdom. So that people can come to know Jesus. What are other facades that we, we build? Other facades and things that we need to sell is sometimes our pride. Um, I grew up in a church that was a mobile church for the first 10 years of his, his existence. So, you know, we would go to a school gym. We would set up our chairs. We'd set up the stage, set up everything we needed, do church, do worship. Then at the end of it all, we would pack it all up, stack chairs, load it into a box truck, drive it away, and um, go store it until the next Sunday. And so... There was times where even myself, I got too prideful, and I've seen others, it happened with others, of they became too proud to do something as simple as stacking chairs. It was something that they thought that, oh, I'm overqualified for this, oh, there's something better I could be doing with my time than doing the simple act of stacking chairs. I'll leave that, you know, for someone new to come do, because it's a simple thing for them to do, but I can spend my time better off doing something else. And my, me, myself, has often had to take the step back and go, no, I'm not too good to do something as simple as stacking chairs and doing that for the church. Yeah. How often do we feel overqualified for certain things? An invitation will come to serve in some way, and we think, man, that's a really good thing. That really needs to happen. But you know what? I'm probably going to have to sit this one out and wait for something that really is more my speed. I'm trained for uh, a few years ago, here at this church, in this building, uh, it's two or three years ago now, uh, and a gentleman that goes to our church, he was brand new at the time, he's still around here today, he uh, came to me, it was a work day we were having, we were spending, working on something outside the building around, and we were all dressed in work clothes, and it was hot, and we are sweating, and, and I was here, and uh, James Billings, our discipleship minister, was here, and Keenan Klein, our creative arts minister, was here, and Eric, you weren't on staff quite yet, but we were here all serving and working along with people, doing these things that had to happen on our property physically to keep things just maintained so we could continue to use this building as a tool to spread the kingdom of God. And this gentleman came up to me and he said, uh, Adam, what are you doing? And I thought he was judging what I was doing, so I started to get a little defensive. I was like, well, I think, I, I think I'm doing it right. He's like, no, no, not that. He said, what are you doing here? I said, well, we're working. We're serving. What's going? What do you mean? What do you? Same reason you're here. He said, well, well where I come from, the pastors don't do this kind of stuff. Everybody else does this. You guys just do the stuff that that's more important. 
And I explained to him, no, no, no. At our church, our culture is that everyone serves. And I've told our staff before, if, if any of us ever get to the point that we said we are too good to pick up a shovel or a paintbrush and do anything, that we've built a facade that has to be crumbled. No one is too good for anything. Because the kingdom of God is built on serving and loving, not on lording and ruling. That's what we do. We let the facades go. We also build these facades of, of time. Now, I have kids, and my kids love sports. My 16-year-old son loves playing basketball. He loves it, and I think he's pretty good at it, and I love watching him play basketball. But I remind him all the time after every game, before every game, after practice, I remind him all the time, man, you can love basketball. Basketball is a game, and it's fun, and it's great, but it's only a game. You're not going to go to the NBA. It's a great pep talk. You're not going to the NBA. When your dad's five foot six, you're not going to the NBA. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Love the game while you get to play the game. But it's not your life. I have so many friends that invest all of their time in youth sports. Man, I decided a long time ago, my kids are not going to be professional athletes. That's not their future. But my kids are going to go to heaven or to hell. So we surrender our time. And we put our kids in places where they can be raised in the Lord. What facades are we building? Are you working 60, 70 hours a week to try to have enough money to buy enough things, but then you're too exhausted to do anything with it? What facades do you need to sell so then you can come follow Jesus? What is it for you? Now, the man, when he heard this, he responded not in the way that I wish he would. How did he respond, Eric? He he responded with his face falling, and he became sad because he had great wealth. Because he wasn't willing to give up. What he had to get something even better. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven? Yeah. Is it a sin to be rich? No, it's not a sin to be rich. No, it's not at all. He then continued on to say the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus then again said, children, how hard is it? Um, to enter the kingdom of God. Is it easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God? Yeah. Let's just pause for a minute and talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So it's actually, it is talked about further in the Bible. It's, takes, it's talked about in First uh, Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, where Timothy talks about uh, how it is, how the root of all evil is sin. And it says specifically, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And so he's talking there about the love of money. And now there's a difference between having money and loving money. Having money is a willingness to use it as a tool to help those around you, to buy new chairs, to put in new carpet, to help someone that you know who might be struggling you know, to reach ends meet for the month or your neighbor's car broke down, they don't know how they're going to pay to um, fix it. Using it as a tool to help others and to help them be able to um, do life, using it as a tool. Whereas the love of money is you're hoarding it for yourself. You're hoarding it to, you know, for your own entertainment, to increase your own comfort, to um, just have the money, to see the numbers in the bank account and go, ah, yes, that's my money. That is what the love of money looks like. And that is what Paul is talking about to Timothy when... He says it is the root of all evil. Yeah, having it and loving it are two 
vastly different things. In fact, the Bible is clear that when you use your resources wisely, God will bless you with more to use wisely. But Jesus tells a story about a man who loved it so much he wanted to build more barns to hold it all because he wanted it. And he said, what you have will be taken away this very night. Having it is a kingdom opportunity. Loving it is a temptation against the kingdom of God. Two vastly different things. The disciples back in the text were even more amazed, and they said to each other, who then can be saved? It's the same question that the man asked in the beginning, the rich young ruler. Who can be saved then? How does this work? Who then can even be saved? And Jesus looked at them, and he says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. It's impossible on your own, but with God all things are possible. There's no way that we can ever earn enough or buy enough or gain enough on our own to be saved. Only through God is it possible. I remember the verse I memorized when I was a little child here in this church. John chapter 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world, you and you and me and you. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not die, but have eternal life. God makes it possible. The only way we can possibly be saved is through God alone. Nothing that we build, no facade, no amount in the bank, nothing we earn, nothing we accumulate, nothing we hoard will ever rescue us. Only through God is it possible. And then Peter spoke up, one of the disciples. He says, we've left everything to follow you. We have left everything. Peter's been listening. Peter's a a sharp guy. And he's been listening. And he heard the guy say, what do I got to do to be saved? And Jesus said, well, you got to go sell everything and then come follow me. And Peter says, well, we left everything. Are, Are we good enough? It's the same question. Are we good enough? Do we get to be saved? Answer it for me. And Jesus is going to answer him with a little paragraph. Begins with a truly I tell you. What does he say here? Truly I tell you. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields along with persecutions and in this age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Yeah, Jesus goes on and says, maybe just in this exaggerated, all-inclusive thing, anyone who's left uh, fields, homes, brothers, mothers, sisters, fathers, anything, will not fail to gain back a hundred times that. Not just in heaven, but in this current age. Now that's not Jesus saying, if you give up a field, you'll get a hundred fields tomorrow. That's not what Jesus is saying. But if you give it up, you gain something far greater today and in eternity. But not just the good parts, you gain the persecutions as well. Jesus was clear with his disciples, if the world hated me, it'll also hate my followers. Be warned, in this world you'll have trouble, but I've overcome it. Take heart. It's what he tells his disciples over and over again. If you surrender everything you have today, you will get something far greater today and in eternity. That's what you get. I'm reminded of one of my heroes of the faith, one of the guys that that I, I just read a story. I love his story. He's a missionary who gave up his life. He lost his life on the mission field trying to tell an unreached people group about Jesus. A man named Jim Elliott, he wrote these words. and I remember I just was a kid and it stuck with me. He said, he is no fool 
who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This rich young ruler comes to Jesus. What do I have to do to live in eternity with you? What must I do to be saved, to be good enough? And Jesus says, you got to give up what you can't keep anyway. None of us, this guy, you, me, none of us are going to take any of our dollars to heaven with us. None of us are going to take any of our toys to heaven with us. None of us are going to take any of our homes, our clothes, our things, our, our accumulated prizes to heaven with us. Nobody gets to take the trophy to heaven. He is no fool who gives up what he can't keep anyway. To gain the one thing you can never get on your own. This rich young ruler comes up. Proud of himself. I got it. Look at me, how good I am. And he goes away devastated because he realizes he's not willing to give up the thing he can't keep to gain the one he can't lose. He's holding on too tight to the things that are going to burn up anyway. Following Jesus begins in surrender. Following Jesus begins in letting go of our things, our past, our habits, sometimes even our families. It begins in letting go and saying, Jesus, you can have all of this. Following Jesus does not begin with sitting in a chair and singing, how great is our God. Following him begins in surrender. And so this morning, I want to invite you, if you've not followed Jesus, to begin to surrender today. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, the apostle Peter, the same one that spoke a minute ago, he's preaching a message on the day of Pentecost, the feast day. And he stands up, he's full of the Holy Spirit now, Jesus has already gone back to heaven. He stands up and he preaches a sermon that everybody in all these different languages all heard and all understood at the same time. And he preaches this whole thing, he finishes it by saying... Brothers, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Savior. And it says that the people that were listening were cut to the heart. They were convicted by God. And they say, what then shall we do to be saved? And Peter says, you repent. It means to change the way you think about every part of your life. Everything you hold, everything you've hoarded, everything you've accumulated, everything that you've done, change the way you think about that. And be baptized. Immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, the forgiveness of that past, and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit of God who comes to live and inhabit and dwell inside you. So if we're going to answer the question this morning, what do I got to do to be good enough to be saved by Jesus? The answer is, you've got to surrender. And you've got to let go of every single thing. And change the way you thought about all those things. And realize they were never yours to begin with. They were always really God's. You've just been a little selfish with it all. So you're going to surrender everything, including your habits and your sin and your trouble and your family and your words and your thoughts and your stuff. And they're going to get baptized lowered into water, forgiven of that sinful past that you've changed the way you thought about now, and raised out of the water full of the Holy Spirit to walk made new, a new creation restarted, reset in Jesus. That is how you get saved.
This morning, it's very easy. If you haven't followed Jesus, in a minute, we're going to start to sing. If you're in the room, when we start to sing, you just leave this room and you go out in the lobby, meet Eric and I at the Next Steps table. We'll talk and pray with you about that next step of faith. If you're online at home right now, what you need to do right now, before you forget, before you get distracted, because Satan's going to try to distract you, right now, you send a message or put a comment right now and say, I want to follow Jesus, and we'll follow with you. And we'll help you take that next step of faith. And for all of us at home or in the room that have been following Jesus for any amount of time, for all of us, I challenge you today to take a look, a long, hard look at all the things in your life and to say, is, do I think it's mine or do I think it's God's? If I think it's mine, I've been protecting it. it it's, it's been a tool that I've taken and I've cleaned and I've shined up and I've hung on the wall and I don't want to use the tool anymore. I challenge you today to take that tool off the wall and to invest that tool, that resource, that money, that time, that thought, that relationship, that family, that thing. You invest it and you leverage it and you use that thing in the kingdom of God. Put the tool to work. Surrender it and say, Jesus, it's yours. Show me how to use it. So when Kenan says in just a few minutes, you are sent, then we will leave this room We will leave our homes and we'll enter a hard, broken world ready to put everything to work so that God is made more glorious. And then we come and follow as a learner of Jesus. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for everything you've done for us. I thank you for every word you said, for everything you've shared, for everything you've convicted us of. I thank you, Father, you've called us time and time again to live the way you wanted us to live. And I pray this morning, before we leave this room, before we log off our computer, I pray you would give us the courage and the urgency and the expectance that we would come follow you. We would run to you right now, surrendering everything, saying, I'm all yours. I've left everything to follow you. And Father, I pray you would do incredible things in us and through us and your kingdom would grow. Disciples would be made and we would get to witness a great move of your spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Christian Church of Carl Junction podcast. If you're looking to take next steps of following Jesus, please email me at Kenan at cccj.church. And I would love to connect with you in taking your next step in following Jesus.